Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings. I'm Dr. Robert Lee Kilpatrick, the chair of the Health and Medicine member-led forum here at the Commonwealth Club. And I'm delighted to welcome you to another program. You know, when the COVID pandemic began, the club had to make a transition after 117 years of in-person face-to-face talks to a new digital platform. And at first, that was a bit of a shock for us. But over time, we've realized that we can have an expanded audience and we can also have speakers from across the world. So today, I am absolutely delighted to welcome a speaker from Manchester, England. Dr. Daniel M. Davis is professor of immunology at the University of Manchester, and he is the author of three books. The first one is The Beautiful Cure. Secondly, The Compatibility Gene. And most recently, and the topic of our program today, The Secret Body, which I have read, and it is an astonishingly interesting book. Professor Davis has been able to take incredibly complex science and reduce it to a level that people like me and people like you can understand. So, without further ado, I'm going to pass the baton to Daniel Davis, and he's going to tell us about how the new science of the human body is changing the way we live. Welcome, Professor Davis. Robert, thank you so much. It's absolutely wonderful to uh, be able to talk to you. It's such a shame we can't be there together in San Francisco, but as you say, it's quite nice to have this ability to connect across the world uh, over over the uh, Zoom. So thank you so much, and let me um, uh, get sharing my slides. So imagine yourself as an alien with an exceptionally powerful telescope trying to understand what happens on the planet Earth. And with your alien telescope, you come across a soccer match or a football match, as it's actually called. And as you observe this soccer match, your telescope isn't powerful enough to see the ball, but you can make out the pitch and the players moving around. There seems to be some sort of organization to what's going on, but it's hard to really understand what's going on precisely. You publish this observation, the discovery of a soccer match in the Alien Journal of Earth Science, and everyone emails you congratulations. In time, alien telescopes improve. And then you see that sometimes a person in front of the goal falls over. And occasionally, when that person falls over, all the crowds around start cheering. This is quite an interesting thing to discuss in the bar of the Alien Congress of Earth Science. And of course, uh, everyone speculates as to what this might mean. And your funding is renewed uh, for another few years to keep up the research. But eventually, when you're much older, a younger alien notices something especially intriguing, which is that when the player falls over in front of the goal, whether or not the crowd cheer seems to depend on something, which is whether or not the net 
bulges outwards. She then postulates that maybe there's a ball that causes that net to bulge outwards. Now, at first, you think that sounds like a crazy idea. Well, that you, your telescope couldn't see the ball. What, why would you speculate that there might be a ball there? But in time, the idea grows on you. And with her idea that the ball is there, suddenly everything starts to make sense. And you start to understand that the players are moving around towards trying to get the ball in the goal. The whole game begins to make sense when you speculate, when you postulate that the ball is there. This is how a lot of science works, that some things are really secret and hidden from view, but you postulate they're there. And when you do, everything starts to make sense. Of course, also within this story is the idea that the, the improvement in the technology, the telescope itself, was really crucial to really understanding the game. Now, I think the same is true with studying the human body. If you delve beneath the skin, some things are fairly obvious, bones and muscles and tissues and organs. But there are many secrets within the body that only start to reveal themselves as the technology improves, getting better and better and better. And I think we're at a revolutionary moment in many aspects of understanding what the human body is because of a large number of tools and technologies have been developed in the last few years that really open up new views of what we fundamentally are. And so in this, so I wrote this book to try and capture the excitement of how revolutionary the, the new views are of these different parts of the body and what that means going forward for our everyday lives. So I'm writing about the cell, embryos, organs and tissues, the brain, the microbiome, and these overarching codes that come from sort of data clouds around us, including our genetic analysis. So in this talk today, I want to talk about a couple of aspects of this in, in, in a bit more detail, cells and how we view our organs and tissues. Now, Robert Hooke, when he was 30, uh, published famously Micrographia, the first book of microscopy uh, for the general public, published it in 1665. And using his primitive version of a microscope, he, he opened up uh, a, a world of things that we just didn't really know that were there. This is a, a wonderful drawing of a flea. And suddenly, using a microscope, secret parts of nature were unveiled to the public. With a microscope, you see new worlds. But in 1872, um, mathematician Ernst Abbe realized that there's a limit to how good a microscope can be. You can't just zoom in forever and ever with a microscope, with a light microscope. And essentially, he derived a formula that said how good a light microscope could ever be. And this is written in stone on a memorial to Ernst Abbe in Jena in Germany, uh, where one of the places where he worked. And basically, you can't get a light microscope to see things better than about 200 nanometers, which is about a hundredth the width of a human hair. And of course, microscopes seeing better and better and better would be able to open up new worlds, 
but there's a limit to how good a microscope can be. Except that, relatively recently, people have invented completely new kinds of microscopes that actually completely break this uh, fundamental law. But it's not that they change the physics, it's just that they have tricks by which you could see better than this law would suggest you should be able to see. In the same way that an aircraft doesn't break the law of gravity, it just has a trick of, of using wings and air pressure, low and high air pressure to keep the plane up in the air. So new kinds of microscopes can get around this fundamental law of physics that says how good a microscope could ever be. And the journey towards these new kind of microscopes is, is a wonderful example of how science happens in sort of convoluted ways without very, very messily across different countries with different kinds of people. And I think the story, any starting place is a bit arbitrary because everything builds on everything else. But one place that this story begins is with uh, Asamu Shimamura, a scientist working at Princeton University who traveled uh, every summer with his family during the 1960s and 70s to the San Juan Islands that are, are not too far from Seattle. And he was interested in how animals and sea creatures communicate with each other by using color. And he was particularly studying a certain type of jellyfish. Um, at the, uh, jellyfish have this sort of umbrella-like structure, and at the rim of the bottom of the jellyfish, there are cells that glow green. And him and his family, shown here, are going over to catch these jellyfish, and they're going to try and work out what it is on a molecular detail that allows the jellyfish to have these green color glowing cells at the rim of the umbrella shape. So each morning they'd get up at 6 a.m., they'd catch loads of jellyfish. People would say to them, oh, how do you cook the jellyfish? But of course they weren't using them to eat, they were using them for these scientific experiments. Um, and this is their, their, their friends and family and, and um, their colleagues getting these buckets of jellyfish. And Osama Shimamura was a certain type of scientist. He was, um, he, he, he often said it's, it's important for scientists to learn how to learn. He wasn't the kind of person that would just sort of go to the stockroom and get the stuff he needed to, to do experiments with. You know, he wanted to isolate molecules out of the jellyfish so he would walk you know go to the uh, the central marketplace and find a kind of fabric that he thought had the right sort of uh, structure to it to allow separation of different parts of the of the uh, jellyfish so he you know, he was kind of an entrepreneurial sort of scientist and of course he's he's interested in how jellyfish are able to glow green or how cells in jellyfish are able to glow green it, it doesn't sound like this is the beginning of a path to a medical breakthrough and a Nobel Prize, uh, but uh, but it is, which is one of the, it's one of the wonderful things that, as, as a scientist, you never really know how your work's going to be used in the future or what's going to turn out to be incredibly important. So he's studying these the the, the jellyfish and uh, and he's looking at what makes the cells at the rim of the umbrella glow green. And he actually isolates two types of protein molecules that allow those cells to glow green. And one of them is called green fluorescent protein. And that becomes um, a really groundbreaking tool that we now use in, in all of biology. So he isolated the protein molecule called green fluorescent protein that allows these jellyfish to glow green. 
But the story then shifts to 1989, where Martin Chalfie, uh, a professor in New York at Columbia University, was listening to a talk where someone mentioned Osama Shimomura's discovery of this green fluorescent protein, the green molecule that allows jellyfish to grow green. And Martin Chalfie suddenly had a light bulb moment where he thought maybe we could use that green glowing protein in all sorts of other applications. Maybe it would make other cells grow green in other animals. Maybe you could use it to visualize where other molecules are. So that was a time, of course, before the internet, way before you know Wikipedia was existing, where you might begin to start looking things up. It was a time when the way to find out stuff was often by phoning people. So Martin Chalfie starts to phone around, trying to find out who knows what about this green fluorescent protein. And he was led to phone uh, a scientist, Doug, Doug Prasher, who was then working at uh, the Woods Hole uh, Institute of Oceanography, uh, um, uh, at, you know, out in Woods Hole. Um, and he, Doug Prasher, was going to isolate the jellyfish gene that was responsible for encoding or making the, that green protein. So Martin said, great, when you isolate the gene, maybe I can, I can use it, send it over. But they sort of lost touch for a while. Uh, um, uh, Martin went on a sabbatical. Doug thought Martin left science, blah, blah, blah. And eventually, though, Martin read a paper where Doug Prasher did isolate the jellyfish gene. Martin then got back in touch and said, oh, you know, maybe you can send over the gene. Sent over the gene. Then Martin uh, gave it to Gia Uskirchin, who was a 26-year-old student at the time in Martin's lab. And she then put the jellyfish gene that would make the green protein in bacteria. And then this is what she saw. So the green glowing protein from jellyfish was now being made inside bacteria and it made the bacteria then glow green. In fact, when she first did this experiment, she didn't see anything under the microscope. But luckily, she thought that maybe the microscope she was using in Martin Chalfie's lab wasn't quite sensitive enough. So she had a, just a quick check under another microscope in a nearby lab and then did see that the bacteria were glowing green. So this is quite a revolutionary moment in science because uh, um, a gene from a completely different creature, a jellyfish, is now able to start making bacteria uh, have this green color under the microscope. Then another uh, uh, scientist in Martin's lab, Yuan Tu, did a, uh, the next experiment in this, in this uh, um, revolution of using the green fluorescent protein in all sorts of ways. And so what he did uh, was essentially take the, the green protein, the gene that encodes the green protein, and he combined that with a switch that would make it switch on in the touch receptor neurons of a worm. And then he injected that gene into the worm's gonads and then um, saw that the gene then passes into the worm's eggs and then it would be expressed in all the worms from those eggs. Then the touch receptor neurons now would, should be able to produce the green glowing protein. And that would should mean that those cells, those particular cells in the worms, should start to 
glow green. This is how the this is the sort of schematic version of that experiment. Just to be clear, that's from the, that's essentially this is the experiment that won a Nobel Prize. He's injecting the jellyfish gene into the gonads of the worms so that the eggs have the gene the worms have produced with the jellyfish gene. The worms should start to make the green glowing protein in a particular cell in the worm. And this is what he saw. So this is the worm with particular cells in it now growing, growing green. And it wasn't obvious that this would happen. It wasn't, it, there could very well have been something about the jellyfish or the jellyfish cells that was needed for this protein to give off this green glow color. It wasn't, although people had moved genes from one species to another long before, it wasn't obvious that it would work, that a single gene would produce a molecule that now glows green. Now, uh, they they published this first in in a in a in the Worm Breeders Gazette, which isn't normally the kind of place you publish a Nobel Prize winning discovery, uh, and eventually they published it in a more preeminent journal, Science. This is the sort of molecular shape of this green glowing protein that we know now. It has this barrel shaped structure with a green glowing part to it right in the center of that barrel. The barrel shaped structure sort of protects the part of it that, that really glows uh, green. Now, nowadays, we use this to make all sorts of things glow green. But at the time, Martin Chalfi told me that, you know, not actually not that many people thought it was particularly exciting. But one person who did think it was really exciting uh, was his wife, Tula Hazelrig. And Martin says it's in part because the first time you hear of something new, it's quite hard to grasp how important it is. But of course, him and his wife were talking about it a lot. So they together kind of realized the importance of it. And in Tula Hazelrig's lab, she really did the experiment that is most like the kind of experiments that we use this for all the time today. Uh, here she is now much later, um, Tula Hazelrig with Martin Chalfi celebrating uh, uh, the success of their work uh, some years later. And what she did then was take the gene for the green glowing uh, jellyfish protein and attach it to the gene of another protein. So that meant that the cells that had that sort of combination gene in it would make the protein you were interested in seeing attached to the green glowing GFP molecule, the green glowing jellyfish protein. So you can take the gene for any protein you want, stick it with the gene of the green glowing one, and now you can essentially make a green glowing version of any protein molecule you want inside a cell. And so at the time, uh, um, a popular magazine called this, you know, the discovery of a biological laser pointer, that you could pinpoint the position of any particular protein you want inside a cell by attaching it to the jellyfish protein and making it glow green. So that opens up a whole new level of how we can visualize where molecules are within cells. But we still haven't got to beating the fundamental law of physics to get microscopes that see better than ever before. Martin Chalfie then wins the Nobel Prize for the green glowing protein. He is with Roger Chen, who was also working in this area, discovering lots of different colors of these proteins and using them in ways that read out particular things about cells. And at the time they were awarded the Nobel Prize, 
Doug Prasher, who you'll remember um, got first got the gene for the jellyfish protein, he had already fallen out of science and in fact was working in a car uh, sales room on $10 an hour. Martin and Roger got in touch with Doug and paid for him to come to the Nobel Prize ceremony. Um, Doug himself doesn't begrudge that they won the Nobel Prize. He says that, you know, they did hugely important work. But of course, they couldn't have done all that work without Doug as well. And, you know, it's one of the things about the complexity of how science works and perhaps something about how prizes uh, have quite a lot of complexity to them as well. But making the microscope itself to see better than ever before brings in uh, some other characters. Eric Betzig in the blue shirt here um, was uh, retired, 42 years old. Um, and in his own words, he didn't have a job. He didn't even have any prospect of getting a job. And he was at home. He, he'd had a, 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 a productive career in science working in Bell Labs um, and had done a lot of work on microscopy, but he was kind of fed up with the slog of it, of the, you know, it's hard work to keep doing science on the cutting edge. And there's a lot of reasons why you might well get uh, fed up of, uh, uh, of, of working in really hard uh, doing scientific things. You know, he was, he was on a break. He, he was 42 years old. He did have an idea for how you could make a microscope that would beat this fundamental law of physics. Um, and he just published the idea uh, and left it at that. He met up with his old friend, Harold Hess, from his Bell Lab days, and they would uh, hang out together in national parks, think about their lives, think about how they did really want to make a contribution to science, and they did really love science. But it was when Eric Betzig read about Martin Chalfie's work, the paper that was eventually published in Science, that you could use this gene from jellyfish to make particular proteins glow green inside other cells. That was when Eric Bexid was, oh, I've really got to get back to it and try and build this microscope. So him and Harold Hess together decided to build this microscope that they had the idea for to get around this fundamental limit uh, of, of how light works, of diffraction, to make microscopes see better than ever before. They used some of their own money, about $25,000 each. Um, and this is the microscope they built. They used some equipment that they had in their garage from their Bell Lab days. Uh, and they built it in Hess's living room. Uh, Eric says because uh, Hess was a, uh, uh, Harold Hess wasn't married, so it was easy to build it in his, in his living room. Um, and, and Harold Hess has this lovely phrase of, you know, you could spend $25,000 uh, just renovating your bathroom, but this was much more fun. So they built the microscope that was going to now beat this fundamental of, uh, of, of uh, to, to see better than ever before in, in their living room. Uh, and it looked like um, this could really work. How does it work? So normal microscopy has this fundamental limit. This is a picture of a cell uh, looking at a particular protein molecule at the surface of the cell. And if you, the resolution of a microscope would essentially be defined by how close two things are before they just get blurred. So this triangle at the bottom is a sort of blurred picture of, 
of six individual molecules that are really in a triangle shape. Now, the trick that Eric Betzig uh, came up with was that what you could do is instead of using light to light up the whole cell at once, if you had a very, very low level of laser light and you had a molecule that didn't just switch on but could switch on and off or change its color, what you can do is use a low level of light to switch on a very small number of the molecules. And then the microscope can't see individual molecules. So you would still get, if you switch on a few molecules, you switch on one molecule, it would make like a flash of light. And that big flash of light would still be quite blurred and big. But if you've only switched on a few molecules, then you know that that big flash of light that you see has only come from one molecule because you've only switched on a few. And then you can just put a dot in the center of where that flash of light is. And then another one, or oh, there's, there's one there, there's a dot, so we'll put a dot in the center there. And you can keep switching on and off all the different molecules and put dots in the center of every flash of light you see because you know at the center of the big splodge of light is where the molecule must be. So you do that, you switch the molecules on and off, and you slowly see big flashes of light, but put a dot in the center of where each flash of light is. And then you do that iteratively, and then you can build up a single molecule picture of where everything is that's at a resolution that you could have never achieved with just a normal light microscope. So this is a trick basically, by which you can see things now, the positioning of individual uh, molecules. Eric Betsig uh, had this idea and built this microscope. A few others, a handful of other people had similar ideas and different ideas of how you get around this. Um, um, uh, uh, Wei Zhuang at Harvard had a, had, a not, had a similar idea and built a microscope that worked similarly to this. And other people that I talk about in more detail in the book, Stefan Hal had another trick that he came up with of also doing microscopy uh, essentially better than anyone had done before. Once they built this microscope in Hess's living room, in Harold Hess's living room, they realized that they sort of needed to prove it really works with sort of biological samples. So Eric Betzig was giving a talk uh, at, the NI, uh, um, uh, at the NIH to gen and, and realized that someone there, uh, Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz, um, might be the kind of person that would let him use his microscope uh, uh, to actually look at biological samples because Jennifer Lipkoch-Fortz's team had done some of the work on developing different versions of the jellyfish glowing protein. And it's really to a testament, firstly, to Eric Betts' sort of charm and charisma because he's coming in to tell someone about a microscope when he hasn't published anything for many years and he's basically an you know, unemployed, retired scientist building a microscope at home. And of course, it takes Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz's sort of imagination to realize that actually this is a really, he, he's doing something really quite thrilling and exciting and it's, and it's genuine. So what happened was she said, okay, let's try it. And Eric Betzig and Howard Hest moved the microscope from Hess's living room into a proper lab. This is it now in Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz's lab. Uh, and, and Eric Betsy joked, he was much less comfortable working here than in Harold's living room, which was much more fun. Um, but this is the microscope they built, and it worked very relatively quite quickly. I think Eric says it was something like six months from when the moment they started building the microscope to when they had enough data that basically won them a Nobel Prize. This is a modern version 
of what this kind of microscope looks like. This is the kind of way in which it's now commercially available, Leica, but also Nikon Zeiss, the big microscope manufacturers make these kinds of microscopes now. Um, you know, we have three of them in, a, in my own lab, for example. You know, each of them now can cost around a million dollars. They're very, very sophisticated. Uh, and, uh, and essentially now we can see better than could have been imagined when you when you you know previously because it's getting around the fundamental a fundamental law of physics that really said how good a microscope can be and then this is the kind of thing you can see now so this is just a just a, an image showing you that these microscopes can reveal things that you just didn't know existed before Jennifer Lippincott Schwartz and Harold Hess here at the Nobel Prize ceremony and of course, the Nobel Prize only goes to a maximum of three people. So there are always people that are involved in the story that that that, that get left out. And, and Eric Betzger has always said that it's a, a great pity that others could not be included, especially Harold Hess, who built the first microscope with him. And one of the things that he said to me that I think is particularly nice is Eric Betzger said, Harold Hess is really an angel. He was happy for me to win. And if it was the other way around, I'm not sure I could be so generous. My own lab is one of tens of thousands that use these kinds of microscopes. And so I don't want to uh, say something about what my lab does it, it, to give you the impression that it's especially important compared to others. But of course, I know my own labs work very well. So I'll just give you a story uh, about how we use these new kinds of microscopes. So this is um, uh, one of these kinds of microscopes in my own lab with Bevin Trainer. Uh, and Bjorn Onfeld, two people who, who used to work in my lab. Bevin Trainer now has her own lab in, in Toronto, and Bjorn Onfeld now has his own lab in Stockholm in Sweden. And they are, they are, look, we're using these microscopes to understand how immune cells uh, see and react against uh, other kinds of cells in the body. This is an immune cell taken right out of someone's blood, and it's sticking to another cell, and it's trying to find out if the other cell is healthy or diseased. And here we've tagged the one of the molecules it uses to detect signs of disease with the green glowing uh, uh, protein. So you can see that the protein is moving up to the contact that the immune cell makes with the other cell to, to report on its state of health. And what happened was that when, we, when I started using microscopes to visualize how immune cells interact with each other, one of the discoveries we made was that between the contact an immune cell makes with another cell, the proteins involved in that communication organize themselves into particular patterns, uh, which were reminiscent of what was happening between neurons. And I, we called this the immune or the immunological synapse to, to, because it was a bit similar to the structured patterning of molecules uh, that allow neurons to communicate. And so there's this synaptic structure that forms and an immune cell sticks to another cell for it to decide whether that other cell is healthy or diseased. If an immune cell sticks to another cell and it is diseased, let's say it's cancerous, then the immune cell will go and kill that diseased cell through using this synaptic structure. Now, if you imagine that you are a cancer cell, you're, you're looking at this screen as if you're the cancer cell, and then the immune cell is stuck to you, then this is, this is what you would see just under the surface of the immune cell. So if you imagine that you're looking, you're the cancer cell, and this is being stuck to you, and this is a meshwork of protein molecules. It's called the cell cytoskeleton. So it's a large array of filaments, all sorts of lines of, of, of polymers of proteins. And, they, and they, they give the cell its shape. And they also can, can unravel and form again to allow cells to move. So this meshwork of filaments un, 
under the immune cell surface is, is what you would see as a cancer cell. Now, if the immune cell is going to kill the cancer cell, kill you, then it has to release these toxic molecules that are within the immune cell, so behind the screen, and then those toxic molecules would have to come out with a, with a packet through this mesh of, of filaments to deliver the toxic molecules in to kill you as the cancer cell. We could only visualize these filaments using super-resolution microscopes. We didn't really see them very clearly before that. And what we discovered was when the immune cell is going to kill, then the, the, the lines move apart a bit to allow the toxic molecules to fit through. So what we're looking at here is we're, we're just coloring the gaps between those individual white lines to see how big they are. And when the immune cell is switched on to kill, then the lines move apart, the holes get a bit bigger that are colored in here. So you can see now there's a lot of red where the holes are getting bigger. And that's where the immune cell would release these packets of toxic molecules to kill a cancer cell. So in normally you have these lines of protein giving a cell an immune cell its shape, but when you switch on the immune cell, the, light, the, the filaments move apart a bit to allow toxic molecules to be released and kill the ca uh, 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 cancer cell. Now, it turns out that multiple myeloma um, uh, can be treated with a particular uh, drug that derives from thalidomide. Thalidomide is, as you'll know, responsible for one of the worst tragedies of all of medical history when it was given to pregnant women as a sedative and any numbers of any number of, of, of tragedies happened by using thalidomide in that way. But also it was discovered by accident, anecdotally, that, that thalidomide did seem to also have some property that would help um, patients with cancer. And so a particular company, uh, a US company, Celgene, that's now part of Bristol Mars Squibb, made a version of thalidomide um, that is called lenalidomide, Revlimid, that could be used in multiple myeloma cancer patients. My own father has multiple myeloma and took this drug uh, for many years uh, to keep him alive, which is why I knew about it and started to think about it. One of the things about this is because it was discovered sort of anecdotally that this seemed to help cancer patients, well, it wasn't very clear as to how it exactly worked. And it turns out in, when we use these super-resolution microscopes to watch what happens when immune cells meet cancer cells in the presence of this drug, is that what happens is the holes between those lines of filaments get bigger. So one of the ways in which this drug seems to work for cancer patients is it allows the immune cells to more easily kill cancer cells because those filaments underneath the membrane of the cell are moving apart. So the details of how this drug works, one of them really came about through watching what happens with super resolution microscopes. Now it turns out at a meeting, scientific meeting where I'm in a bar talking to uh, a Polish scientist working in the NIH, Konrad Kaczewski, he was looking at, completely unrelated to my own research, he was looking at a rare genetic illness called Chidiak Higashi syndrome. And in children that have this genetic deficiency, they have recurrent problems with certain types of infection. One of the hallmarks of that type of uh, genetic deficiency is that the immune cells that we had been studying called natural killer cells are not very good at killing certain virus-infected cells, for example. And Conrad uh, uh, Kaczewski was looking at cells from these patients 
and saw that the packets of toxic proteins that have to come out from an immune cell to kill a disease cell, they were in packets that were much larger than normal. These red blobs here are containing the toxic proteins in an immune cell to, that would be used to kill a cancer cell or a virus-infected cell, and they're just much bigger than they normally would be in, in cells taken out from a normal healthy donor. This led to the idea that maybe people with this genetic deficiency aren't good at dealing with infections because they can't release these packets of toxic proteins very well because they don't fit through the lines in that meshwork of filaments. And we just saw that a drug used to treat cancer patients opens up that meshwork more to allow cells to kill better. So maybe that drug could be used in these children with genetic deficiencies. I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't do experiments directly on patients, but we can take cells from the patients and see in a lab dish whether the drug helps them kill better. And we couldn't do it much because the, 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 this genetic deficiency is rare and it's, and it's in children, so it's hard to get samples. We, but we did see a small effect of the cancer drug being used to help cells from these children be able to kill disease cells better in a lab dish, at least. So this isn't a, a big medical advance yet because we didn't treat any, any patients and there could be side effects. But it does show you that from the images, we got to learn how a cancer drug works. And that led to the idea that you might be able to repurpose that drug in a totally other, totally different situation, which is a particular genetic deficiency. And that all really comes from microscopes being able to see secret worlds in what goes on in the human body that go right back to Osama Shimomura collecting jellyfish in the 1960s. As Freeman Dyson once wrote, new directions in science are launched by new tools much more often than by new concepts. The effect of a concept-driven revolution is to explain old things in new ways, but the effect of a tool-driven revolution is to discover new things that have to be explained. Another tool I want to talk about has its origins uh, in Lenin, with Lennon Lee Herzenberg. They were married in 1953 when Len was 21 and Lee was 18. As Lee told me, our parents thought we were too young, too innocent, too poor, and too crazy. But to cut, a, you know, I, I can see the times going on, so I'm going to cut quite a bit of their story. But essentially, I have to tell you that they met in college uh, and they decided essentially to pack up together. They drove 3,000 miles in a car, loaded up all their stuff to begin work together, uh, working uh, in Caltech. Uh, this is Lennon Lee Herzenberg, uh, uh, older, of course, as many people would have known them much more. Uh, and the tool that they developed was came from the fact that at the time that they, have, they, they worked in Paris, they worked in NH, they eventually end up in Stanford University. And in Stanford University, the immune system was opening up in the sense that lots of different immune cells were being discovered. And it was important to work out what the different kinds of immune cells did. One of the ways that are important in doing that is to isolate the different kinds of immune cells that exist and then uh, uh, mix them back up in different ways to see what happens. Len had bad eyesight and didn't like to use a microscope. And one of the things that 
they realized was important was to have a way of separating out different kinds of cells and counting different kinds of cells in blood to be able to work out what different kinds of immune cells did. This is the groundbreaking instrument they built in a basement in Stanford University for about $14,000. They built it in 1969. This is a photo from 1972 with Mike Loken, one of the people that worked with them, standing in front of this instrument. And this is an instrument that can sort different kinds of cells apart. Now, it might seem a bit strange. Why is it so complicated to make something that sorts out different kinds of cells? Well, for example, a coin sorter works very simply with just different coins run along down a tube and then, you know, small coins will fall through a hole while big coins pass along and then they fall down a bigger hole. So it's quite easy to sort out something like coins just by the size of them. But immune cells, for example, white blood cells, all look fairly similar, sort of, you know, roughly they're spherical, squishy things that can kind of change their shape. So you can't easily just sort out different kinds of immune cells by, by their size because they can all squeeze through the similar size hole anyway. So you have to have a more elaborate instrument to sort out different kinds of cells. And uh, Len Herzenberg really got a big idea for how to do this from something that was happening in Los Alamos, where they were looking at um, sorting out radioactive particles from the lungs of animals that were taken up into hot air balloons uh, uh, in nuclear test experiments. This is a uh, this is the uh, cell sorter that they built a bit more that uh, was a bit more advanced than the one we just saw, and uh, uh, how it works. Come, is schematically shown here. So essentially, Len and Lee found a way to mix up the different populations of cells and color them differently. They, they, they used antibodies or other ways of labeling the cells in different colors. And then the cells fall through this nozzle, a laser hits them, reports on what color it is, and then that sends a message to charge the, a droplet that has a single cell in it. So, for example, this purple cell has been detected as being a purple cell. It then gets a positive charge. And then as that droplet falls down further, they had two plates, positive and negative. And so the positively charged droplet would be attracted to the negative plate and fall in one particular tube. The next cell would come and that has a different color to it. It gets a different charge, sorted to the other side and, and captured again. This is how you could capture different kinds of cells. It also meant that they could really elaborately quantify properties of cells. So that what they would do is they would color the different kinds of cells as, say, red and green, uh, with labels that are red and green. And of course, that then could become the coordinates of the cell on a graph like this. So that you would have some cells that are have both green and red, some that only have red, and some that only have green. And you could plot their position on a plot like this to work out, to visualize the different kinds of cells that are present in a complicated sample. Now you can do that on an unprecedented scale. You can look at 20, every gene, you can look at the level that a cell uses all of the 20,000 human genes and plot that in a complicated, of course, you we couldn't plot a, a graph with 20,000 axes, but a computer can analyze that kind of information in the same way that you could plot 
just two colors as the coordinates of a cell. And so this is just an example looking at a type of white blood cell called the natural killer cell that's good at killing cancer cells. And now you have all sorts of different versions of that cell that are plotted in this way by analyzing how each of the 20,000 genes are being used in each individual cell. And now you can create clusters of cells and say, well, all of these types of this immune cell are using a similar set of genes. And all of these other types of this immune cell are using a different set of genes. So there's sort of different nuances in this flavor of an immune cell and that flavor of an immune cell that you couldn't have seen very easily in any other way. Again, new worlds being opened up by the technology, allowing us to capture nuances in all the different types of immune cells that are out there. You'd have heard of things like T cells and B cells, especially now uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. But this kind of technology tells you that there are hundreds of different nuanced versions of T cells and B cells, for example. Aviv Regev is one of the pioneers then who is taking this kind of work to a whole new level, working with others, Sarah Tychwin and several others, she is on a mission to create a Google map of the whole human body. What are all the 37 trillion cells of a human body doing and how do we categorize them? This is the first meeting they had in the Wellcome Trust in 2016. Now the Human Cell Atlas is an enormous global endeavor to use this kind of technology to look at what cells are making up a human body. The really wonderful thing about that process is that you don't even need to predict in advance what cells should be there. This is uh, nasal salts we're very used to taking now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a, a particularly deep nasal swab that's taken by a physician to screen for SARS-CoV-2. At the end of those swabs is not just whether the virus is there, we're using those, those swabs to check for people screening for virus, but at the end of those swabs are also some of the cells uh, the epithelial cells from up inside uh, uh, the um, uh, up inside your nose, essentially, and you can use that kind of analysis then to say, well, what are all the cells that are there? And these are all the variety of cells that are there, and you can tell what cells are there, which cells are infected. And this is not just this is important as fundamental science: what kind of cells are in that place in the body, but also which versions of these cells are infected and how they're responding to the virus correlates with the course of the illness. So again, new worlds that are medically important are opened up by this kind of analysis, visualizing the clusters of cell types that exist in a nasal swab, and then relating that to the course of the disease of COVID-19. This is Ms. Hanifa working in uh, Newcastle in the UK, and she is also using this kind of technology, this time to analyze human skin, using this, looking at all the different kinds of cells that make up human skin, which is this amazing variety here. Again, worlds opened up by the technology and relating that to different kinds of skin diseases, inflammatory skin diseases uh, to, to visualize. And right now, this is a scientific program, but Musanifa is a, is a physician and she knows that in time, this is going to move into medical practice, that you would be able to take a snapshot of a person's skin, look at the state of health of all of the cells within it, compare that to other disease states and make informed medical decisions about that person's uh, uh, state of health of their skin, for example. 
So I've told you a bit about the revolution in looking at cells and how we have technology to look at organs and tissues in new ways. And, and, I've just, and, and there are other areas which we could have discussed, embryos, brain, microbiome, and, 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 and overarching codes. I think what all of this means in the secret body, that me, what all of this, the secret body means for our lives is very much in the balance. All of this raises, in the near future, you'll be able to analyze yourself, either you personally or your physician, and you will have a very, very deep level at which you could analyze your own personal state of health. And I think this revolution is a bit different from many other scientific revolutions, like the Industrial Revolution, which affected all of society in a, in a sort of big way. This type of revolution affects you very personally because it leads to you having to make clear personal decisions about your own health. But I just want to end with one other thing before I bring back uh, Robert for, for a discussion. And that is that, you know, one, one of the things that Eric Betzig uh, did when he won, you know, he he said something that I've always I always think of uh, 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 very a lot, and it seems very profound to me. When when he won the Nobel Prize for his new super resolution microscope, people, you know, they give their speech for winning the Nobel Prize, and they end normally by thanking all the large numbers of people that helped them get there. Eric Betzig did that, but then he said something else, which is dear to my heart, and I'll just read it to you. The last thing I would like to say is about taking risks. People are always exhorted to take risks, and that's fine. But you're hearing that from guys whose risks paid off. It's not a risk unless you fail most of the time. And so what I'd really like to do is I'd like to dedicate my talk to all of the unknown people out there in any walk of life who have gambled their fortunes, their careers, and their reputations to try to take a risk, but in the end failed. I'd just like to say that they should remember that it's the struggle itself that is its own reward and the satisfaction that you knew you gave everything you had to make the world a better place. Okay, so thanks for listening. And I'm going to bring back Robert now. Uh, to discuss some of these things. Hi, Robert. Hello, Daniel. Wow. Uh, I can only um, say that uh, having uh, read your book uh, one and a half times, I'm, I'm partway through the second time, it is a veritable feast. And today you gave us an hors d'oeuvre. And you gave us an hors d'oeuvre in the sense that in the book you talk about uh, six frontiers. So you talk about cells, the fetus, the immune system, the brain, the microbiome and the gut, and uh, the genome. And today we heard a little bit about a small part of it. So I would urge our audience to buy this book, get this book, read this book, because it's a really big story. And um, so what I'd like to do is ask a few questions to clarify some points, if I may. Uh, the first thing is that when I was listening to you talk, uh, I was listening as a, just a regular human being, you know, as a relatively healthy one, uh, occasionally a patient. 
And so what I wanted to know was, what can you say, as you did near the end of your talk, about how it will affect uh, me and, and the audience personally, say in terms of the ability to predict and prevent illness in the future? So given yeah. all the amazing science and the technology and the machinery and the personal stories of scientists, can you give us a flavor of what we can expect to see in the next, say, five to 10 years in terms of prediction and prevention? Thanks, Robert. Well, this is a hugely important big issue. And as I, you know, you've, you've thought deeply about this yourself as well, I know, then it's true that you know, we are at the cusp of a revolutionary time in 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 the, in the prediction of 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 healthcare, and uh, and you know, right now you can get a watch that tells you something about your state of health. But I think in the near, relatively near future, that is going to be a hugely different level of thing that you would be able to do. Um, and there are already some examples where you know, obviously people are aware of things like mutations in certain genes like BRCA1 on 2 that relate to your likelihood of developing breast cancer. Those are well-documented examples. But there are many, many, many much more subtle things that are emerging. And one of the examples I talk about in my book is that an analysis of your microbiome uh, can tell you something about which type of diet might work best for you if you were going to try to lose weight, for example. And so that's an, that's a, a one of the examples. And then I think this raises two sorts of very important things. One is you personally have to think deeply about how much of this you want in your own life. Some people do not want to know whether or not they've inherited a genetic mutation that is almost certainly going to lead to a life-threatening problem when they're older. Some people really do want to know that. You, so you will have to decide. And then I think it's also true you'll have to decide if you're children. And then I think the other issue for society is who's going to pay for all of this. Um, our countries, the US and the UK, do healthcare in a different way. Uh, but both both of our countries try to try their best to have some level of basic healthcare available to everyone. But of course, this kind of analysis is inherently very expensive. And so at what level you will be paying for this? Are, are health insurance companies in the US going to pay for microbiome analysis that may give you some information? You know, so that is another area where these kinds of things become really important. And my own personal mission here is not to be prescriptive and tell you I believe this is important or this isn't important and you should do this or do that. It's really, a, 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 as a basic scientist, I can tell you what it means, where all this comes from, and and that should hopefully equip you with the power you need to make these kinds of difficult personal decisions. Thank you. Um, I felt when I was listening to your talk, there was, a, there was a subtle message. I say subtle in the sense that I don't think you said this outright. So I want to ask you a question. Really, it's to clarify this. It, it seemed to me that when you were talking about the cells, and then when I've read the book and I've seen you talking about the five other frontiers, you are really talking about something that's called systems biology. So that, that is to say you're, you're seeing the, the human body as a whole living entity and systems 
uh, structures and functions are all connected in the body. And I, I mentioned that because, you know, when I studied at Berkeley, uh, everything was reductionist. So it was no, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces of a, of a dead body, essentially. So what can you say about this notion of, of how science, how the science of biology has become much more holistic and systems oriented? Yes, I do um, absolutely agree with you that that an important aspect of the direction of travel for scientific understanding of the body is viewing things, how things are interconnected. Um, and there are very concrete examples such as, you know, people studying the immune system, people are studying the nervous system, but now it's very important to understand how the, ner- the immune system and the nervous system are interconnected. And even on a grander scale, it's important to understand how other aspects of the body are. Everything is interconnected with everything else, as you say, in a kind of systems level view. But I think there are different levels at which we can look at things. So I think that, you know, some tools like a microscope is digging into the details, the nanoscale details of how a cell works. And that's that's revolutionary. And then it's also true that other tools reveal other aspects of the body that emerge from the interconnection of different different levels of, of, of our genome, of our microbiome and other things. So there are different, I, I liken that in the book to sort of, you know, if you think about the Mona Lisa, you know, a microscope would be looking at a cell, which would be like zooming in to, to look at the brown iris of, of, of the Mona Lisa. But that's, you know, you have to zoom out a bit to see the whole Mona Lisa. And then even the whole Mona Lisa isn't actually all the Mona Lisa painting, because you also have to think about the monetary value of Leonardo da Vinci's life, other paintings that were painted around the same time. Everything is incredibly complex. Or in the analogy I gave of the football game in the beginning, the soccer game, you know, there's the offside trap, there's the crowds, there's the traffic jams. Everything is very, very complicated and works at lots of different levels. So the human body has all these levels within it. And and the way I see it is that what the, the overriding message of my book is that at every level, things are really kicking off in how we understand that, right down to how we see cells, to how we see the whole of systems, uh, uh, human biology as well. Thank you. Well, uh, as as we're nearing, sadly, nearing the end of the program, I have kind of a final question uh, that combines uh, a question that is mine and a question that we got from the audience. I'm going to kind of put them together. Um, so we've often heard people talk about, uh, say, quote unquote, pure science. That is to say, sometimes scientists will say, you know what, we are just pursuing truth for its own sake. We really don't want to have an influence from corporate or, or other commercial. And then you'll hear people talk about applied science. And often this is in uh, you know research institutes that are connected either to governments or to uh, commerce. So... At the very end, you were talking about the Human Cell Atlas Project, which is uh, which is a big project. And when you said uh, it, it potentially will look at, you know, basically every part of the human body, suddenly alarm bells went off in my head. And I thought, well, there's a quadrillion dollars and pounds down, you know. So I, I guess if uh, one of the questions that came in was related to your talk about the microscope, but I'm going to apply it to the Human Cell Atlas Project, too, which is, you know, is is part of this work that you're describing geared to uh, improving health in measurable and de- demonstrable ways, 
or, or are we talking about just this kind of this pure science uh, exercise with the with kind of the hope that, you know, quote unquote, good things will, will spin out of it. So the last thing I'll say is when I heard about that human cell atlas project, I thought, well, this will employ scientists for many centuries. OK, Robert, that's a, that's a, that's you know, that's an important question. And I think uh, one way of very quickly answering that is there's an enormous diversity in, in who does science. And some people are doing it for fundamental basic knowledge. Some people are doing it with a view to making new medicines and improving healthcare. In the Human Sun Atlas project, just to give you one example, you they analysed the trachea, the windpipe of animals and then also in humans. And by looking at all the cell types within the trachea, they stumbled across a type of cell that no one knew existed before. You know, previously, um, sperm was discovered by looking looking at sperm with a primitive microscope. Now we discover a whole new cell type as a bunch of dots on a computer screen with properties that we didn't know existed before. It turns out that that particular cell type in the trachea, one of the genes that it uses to that distinguishes it as a new cell type is it's using the gene that's important uh, in cystic fibrosis. And so it could be that those cells are really important in how the disease cystic fibrosis uh, works and, and, and could lead to new medical ideas for targeting the right kinds of cells to deal with that type of illness. So I think that you need all attacks on diseases. Some people should be very specifically driven to understanding a disease focused on helping patients, but some people should be, for want of a better word, messing about a bit more, looking at what are the fundamentals here, and they may well stumble across. You know, a lot of discoveries in science come from a creative messing about approach, but equally a lot comes from a very directed, hypothesis-driven working on a disease. You need all sorts of stuff going on. And the way I see it is the best approach in all of science is to place lots of bets. You don't quite know what's going to work super well. Bet on lots of things. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Daniel M. Davis, who the author of uh, The Secret Body, which I encourage everybody to read. Uh, you've, you've tapped into us all the way from Manchester, England, and it's probably approaching your dinner time. So I hope you have a tipple of your choice waiting just around the corner. Uh, I'd like to thank you, and I'd like to thank uh, our audience who uh, listened to this program today and who will be able to view it uh, online in a week or so uh, and share it with your friends. You know, today's talk with Professor Davis was an example of what the Commonwealth Club does so well and has done for 119 years, which is that we bring to you some of the greatest thinkers in the world uh, talking about the, the biggest challenges that humanity faces. We're based here in San Francisco, California. We're the oldest and largest public affairs forum in the United States of America. I encourage all of you in the audience, if you are not members, you can join for a modest $10 a month and have access to all of this programming. Uh, if you are a member, I'd like to thank you for being a member. I look forward to seeing you again. Please go to www.commonwealthclub.org and check out some of our programming. I think we have you know 15 to 20 programs a week in many different fields. So again, thank you, uh, Professor Davis. And do come visit us here in San Francisco when you're able to do so. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Robert. And thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been wonderful to do this. Thank you so much. Bye for now. 
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.